Good morning. Philippians chapter 2 is where we want to be in the Word of God. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start reading at verse 1 once again. Philippians 2 and verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, I like the realism of the Bible, that it doesn't sugarcoat problems. It doesn't take its heroes and pretend like they have no faults. Much like Oliver Cromwell, it says, paint my portrait warts and all. And the Bible does that, especially in the Old Testament, when we consider the great heroes of the faith there. We often see their mistakes, their missteps, their sins. But also, as we've been hearing from Brother Rex in the life of Simon Peter, we can see in the New Testament, the Lord is very frank about the raw material that he's dealing with, that we are flawed, that we have the flesh, that we sin, that we often do the wrong thing. That is precisely why we need a Savior. Now, many people have the mistaken notion about Christianity that it is a system of rules and regulations that tell you how to be a good person. That is not Christianity at all. Christianity tells you how you can have a brand new life through the Lord Jesus Christ, where his power works in you to change you, and where you live a life that pleases God, not by your power, not by your strength, not by self-improvement, but by relying on the Lord through his Spirit. It's like someone has said, the Lord Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead men live. And that's very true. The Bible says that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 and verse 1. So when we come to a passage like Philippians 2, it ought not to surprise us that here he's talking about the need not to act through selfish ambition or conceit, but to consider others better than oneself. In fact, H.A. Ironside, a Oakland boy, so uh, those from the Bay Area can claim him as a hometown fo- a person. Henry Allen Ironside, called Harry by some. Mr. Ironside says that the whole passage's theme is summed up in the last word in verse 4, at least in the King James translation and the New King James translation. It's the word others. It puts me in mind, of course, of the last words of General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. When he was dying, there was a Salvation Army conference going on in late 19th century or early 20th century England. I'm not exactly sure of the year. But in any case, the folk at the conference knew that the man who had founded their organization was dying, that he was soon going to be with the Lord. And they heard that he was near the end, and they wondered, what are his last words going to be? And someone came to the conference with a telegram, and they said, we have the last message of Brother Booth to us. And it was one word, it was others. He had grasped the spirit of Philippians chapter 2, 
that idea of putting others first. We have a chorus we sing with our Sunday school children. It's called Jesus and Others and You. What a wonderful way to spell joy. Some of you are nodding, so I take it you sing it out here as well. That's a lovely little acronym, isn't it? Taking J is for Jesus, for he is first place. O is for others you meet face to face. Y is for you in whatever you do, put yourself last and spell joy. Now that is exactly counter to how we are naturally wired, isn't it? We often think me first. In fact, I heard a missionary say about a foreign language, there's a particular language, I don't know which one, but it has a term in the language that means me, and then again me, and me some more, and then you, okay? Now, I don't know grammatically how that works or even where that's spoken, but whether we have a term for it in our language or not, we're certainly familiar with the concept, aren't we? The me first kind of concept. In fact, we have people talk about the 70s, the decade in which I was born, as the me decade, okay? And I, I hate to tell you, but the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s, and whatever we're calling this decade we're in now, I guess we're back to the teens again, but uh, the 21st century teens, each succeeding decade hasn't made us less thinking of ourselves or more altruistic Naturally, as human beings, we still want to put ourselves first. But the Lord Jesus says, some of the last shall be first. The Lord Jesus says that the whole attitude we are to cultivate as believers is putting others first. To, as it says here, look not each on your own interests in verse 4, but also for the interests of others. It's not the idea of being a busybody. It's not the idea of meddling and being nosy. It's the idea of how am I going to further my brother or my sister's progress in the things that God has for them? How am I going to serve them and interact with them such that they get closer to the Lord and that they are thereby spiritually advantaged? It is not some sort of uh, fake uh, obsequiousness or fake mock humility where we say, oh, I'm no good, I'm no good, and you're much better than I am. No, we're not talking about the qualitative value of the people as much as saying we're putting these people first that they might grow and progress in the Christian life. Now, somebody says, well, that's very easy to preach in a sermon, Mr. Preacher, but do you know the Christians back at my home church? I mean, and do you know the people in my community for that matter? I mean, it's great to be saved and all that, but really, isn't this carrying things a bit too far? And anyway, if I don't take care of myself, who will take care of me? I mean, when I hear about people looking at churches, so often I hear terminology like this. Well, I didn't like that place because it didn't meet my needs. I'm always saddened when I hear people say that. It's not that I don't recognize people have needs, but it's as if we say the Lord can't through his body take care of us, that he doesn't know how to use the gifts to minister to us. And of course, it puts that focus on us first, on saying, what are my needs? Some of you know my good friend, Craig Shikarji who for a number of years matriculated through the graduate school of UCLA. So I'll give props to Southern California once again and fellowshiped with the dear folk over at Avenue 54 and, and loves them very much to this day. 
But my brother, Craig Shikarji, had one of the best sermon titles I ever heard in this theme. He asked the question, the Christian, spigot or sponge? And that's a good way of looking at it, isn't it? A spigot is something you can turn on and you can get that refreshing, quenching water, can't you? But what does a sponge do? A sponge soaks up. A sponge takes. In fact, to get from a sponge, you know what you have to do? You have to take the sponge and squeeze it really hard. Does God have to squeeze us really hard to get blessing for somebody else? Or are we like the spigot? That blessing, quenching, lovely, refreshing water flows from us, spiritually speaking. Well, of course, this doesn't come about naturally. Again, I say this isn't moralism. This isn't telling us what good thing we have to do in our own power or in our own strength. We find out as we read through the passage that putting others first is something that flows directly from the mind of Christ at work in the believer. You can't consistently live with this kind of attitude without having the Lord Jesus enthroned in the center of your personality. Without having the power of the Lord Jesus to draw upon, you have no hope of putting others first. And I have no hope. None of us are naturally that nice. We saw last night in the gospel meeting that Paul puts forward the great example of the Lord Jesus Christ as the kind of selfless mindset, the kind of attitude that consistently and always put others first, even when it meant impoverishing himself. You remember what 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says about our Lord Jesus, for you know the grace of our God, uh, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. Who can quantify how much the Lord Jesus gave up, how much he poured out, how much he spent? He gave himself even unto death. Romans tells us he pleased not himself. He said, the reproaches of them that reproach thee have fallen on me. He would suffer for his father's glory. He would suffer in accordance with his father's will. And he would suffer for our eternal blessing if we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He poured out his soul unto death, Isaiah 53 says. That idea of a measured and calculated, purposeful giving of the entirety of one's being, that the Lord Jesus unreservedly laid down his life as a sacrifice on the cross of Calvary and then rose again to the glory of God the Father. Well, you might say, well, of course, that was the Lord Jesus, wasn't it? He's the Son of God, after all. God incarnate, God manifest in the flesh. Of course, God's going to do the right thing. We expect him to put others first. I mean, doesn't he take care of us providentially? Over six billion people on the planet, and here's God giving them the right mixture of air to breathe. Here God has the sun come up with tremendous regularity. Every morning, I understand, whether we can see it or not. Here's God who gives us rain in due seasons, and food, and oil to make our face shine, and bread, which maketh glad the heart of man. And he speaks about uh, wine that maketh glad the heart of man in Psalm 104. God who gives us all these wonderful things to enjoy. God is well practiced at putting others first, even at the expense of his son. 
In fact, when Paul wants to describe the level of divine generosity in Romans 8, he says, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Now, if you had a benefactor who said, I understand you're in debt by $10 million, I'm going to credit your account that amount to pay all your debt. And then you realized, oh, you know, the cell phone bill just came in and my kids have been going wild on the data plan and <laughs> I've got a $500 cell phone bill. Do you think the person who would give you $10 million could be asked to give you $500 to pay your cell phone bill? You say, well, if their heart of generosity is such that they give me such a great sum, surely a much smaller sum would be no problem for them. They'd freely give it to me. Well, think of the God who gave his own son, the most precious being in the universe. I wouldn't willingly give my son for you. I wouldn't willingly give my daughters for you. Naturally speaking, at least. That wouldn't be my desire for you. I wouldn't want to see them have to die so that you could live. Now, if in the providence of God that happened, okay, I accept it. But it wouldn't be my choice. But think of how God chose. He sent his son while knowing everything that he would endure. And the son came saying, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. What would the Lord Jesus do with that body? Well, he would use his feet to be beautiful messengers of the gospel as he would go and tell people the words of life. What would he use his hands to do? He would use his hands to touch the leper. Not just say, stand down, win from me, old boy, and I'll cleanse you. But to touch the leper and say, I am willing, be thou cleansed in Mark chapter 1. Lips that always were filled with the beautiful uh, aromatic, fragrant words of God. Words that people said, no one ever spoke like this man. Even those sent to arrest him acknowledged it. And that life, that body, that whole person, entirely given over to the will of his father, entirely given up in service for others, would be left on the cross of Calvary to suffer as a sacrifice for sin. And even as we heard this morning, as they were nailing him to that cross, there's the Lord praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All the standard of divine love, all the extent of divine generosity, how much, as we sang this morning, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. When we consider the wealth of what was given, of who was given, and when we consider, at the same token, our unworthiness. One of the older hymns says, the wonder of redeeming love and my own worthlessness or my unworthiness, some have it. Yes, it's a tremendous love. Well, somebody says, of course, God's going to be that way. But Paul unabashedly makes the application in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if somebody takes this verse out of context, they may get the mistaken idea, and some have, that we have to work for our salvation. I can tell you that is not true because there are many other verses that tell us salvation is 
not something we work for. Titus chapter 3, for example, says, it's not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And when we consider the context that he's just told us what the Lord Jesus did to make a way of salvation for us, that the Lord Jesus had to pour out his life on the cross, how could he then turn around and say, now you go and add your bit to it? I mean, it'd be like telling the person who gave you $10 million, hey, I've got a quarter, I'll chip in. Wouldn't that be offensive? (laughs) That person would say, put your quarter away, my friend. Save it for the jukebox. You, you add a, you know, a couple more bucks to it. Maybe you can get a song. <laughs> Poor Travis Tritt. He can't even call someone who cares anymore. The quarter is depreciated, hasn't it? But what he's telling them here is maybe one of twofold ideas. Because the word salvation can be translated deliverance. And it can be used in situations other than the salvation of one's soul. Some people think, some Students of the Bible have studied this, and they think that what Paul is saying here is, here you've got this problem of disunity in your fellowship. That's why I'm exhorting you to be of one mind and one spirit in the Lord. And you need to put others first. So here's what you have to do. Based on the example of Christ and based on his power in you, you need to now go ahead and apply these principles and solve your problem. Use the resources the Lord gives you in himself, not to be a disunited people, but to unify. Now, perhaps that's the meaning, but I prefer a second understanding. Some have said that this salvation that he speaks of is talking about the salvation of our soul. And it has well been said by an older writer that we work out what God works in. In other words, when someone is born again, It's a new kind of life being put with inside you. But that life has to grow and develop like an organic thing. And of course, you know, if you are a person who gardens or who has plants, and I uh, strictly try to raise hot peppers myself, being a, a chili head. I'm a spice aficionado. So we try to, we're right now, we're trying to grow the hottest pepper in the world, the newly crowned Carolina Reaper pepper. And uh, you might pray for that. The, the, the shoots are coming up slowly. But in any case, knowing there's life there, we do a lot to develop it. We make sure the soil's good around it. We make sure it gets water with regularity. We make sure it has access to the sunshine. And I believe he's saying here, God's given the power here through his spirit. In fact, the next verse is going to tell us it's God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, this salvation you've been given, it needs to be developed. You need to progress. You need to grow in the Lord. And as you grow in the Lord, you're going to consider others first. So he says, verse 13, uh, verse 12, rather, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We should be reverent about our dealings with the people of God. You know, so many people take it flippantly that we come together in assembly and how we behave one with another. Well, if I say something and somebody takes offense, big deal. They need to toughen up a little bit. I mean, they're oversensitive, you know. 
Or if somebody doesn't like something I've done, well, that's their problem. What business is it to me? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, the New Testament says you are your brother's keeper. And you can't be insensitive to your brother or your sister's growth in the Lord. You can't put a stumbling block in the way of your brother or sister. If you remember that your brother has something against you, the Lord Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. You see, it's of the most vital importance that we as believers love one another. And as our brother was saying so well, that we forgive one another, that we don't let a root of bitterness to take hold in our lives, that we don't become disunified by the fact of majoring on each other's sins and failings. We all have sins and failings. That's why we need the Lord. And we're all growing in the Lord at different rates. We're all at different levels, depending on when we were saved and depending on our background and how the Lord's been working with us. So we have to do this here with fear and trembling, knowing that this is the most important work in life, the development of my soul before God in this world. It's more important than my career. It's more important than where I'm going to live. It's more important even than whom I'm going to marry. All of those are important things. But the most important thing is, how am I going to grow in the Lord? And how am I going to help others grow in the Lord? Now, thankfully, it's not left to us to do all the work here. God is working in us, verse 13 says. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, again, we heard from Brother Rex this morning how some murmured. And this is a frequent refrain in the Bible, especially when we look at Old Testament Israel in the wilderness. They were characterized by murmuring. And in the next verse, verse 15, he actually goes back and he alludes to Deuteronomy chapter 32, which was talking about that generation that had gone through the wilderness and was about to enter the land. And here's what God wants us to be, what he wanted them to be and what he wants us to be, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, I heard the um, Yosemite Old Time Revival Sanctified Jug Band last night, uh, I'm just throwing it out there, you know. It's as good as RSV, I'll I'll put it that way. Uh, Just trying to throw out my candidate for the band. But they were singing, This Little Light of Mine. And that's what this verse is talking about. Our motoring through this world is not just to see who can accumulate the most stuff or who can get the highest position in this world or who can become famous or who can have a satisfying life to themselves. The Lord says as his people, what we're to be is lights in the world. In fact, the Lord Jesus said it in Matthew 5, didn't he? He said, let your light so shine before men that they may glorify my father in heaven as they see your good works. It's incredibly important that we shine as a light in this world, that we take that seriously. That's what God wants us to be, not complaining and disputing, fussing and fighting, if you will, but shining as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation and holding fast, verse 16, the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain or labored in vain. 
Now, so often the Bible gives us exhortations like this. It tells us that hearing the word of God and sitting under the word of God is not a passive activity. We are not just to sit here and say, hmm, well, that was interesting. Or at least that guy kept me awake, you know. Or he was kind of funny every once in a while. I mean, I'm a Bay Area person, so I didn't appreciate that Southern California stuff. Or maybe conversely, I'm a Southern California person, so I wish he'd leave the Raiders at home, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, uh, now I can get to what I'm really here for, the hiking and the fishing and the trails and all that good stuff. No, when we sit under the word of God, we have to hold on to God's truth. Because naturally speaking, we are the type of people that if we aren't holding on to the truth, it's like being in a raging river. If you're holding on to something that's a settled post in the river, well, you can hang on there and maintain your place. If you let go, where are you going to go? You're going to drift with the current. And we naturally are prone to drift. So Paul says here, you've got to hold fast to the word of life. You've got to hold to the scriptures. Be not just hearers of the word, as James says, but doers of the word. Now, somebody might say, well, that's very nice, Paul. But does anybody really live that way? I mean, besides the Lord Jesus, that's a given, right? He's the perfect son of God. Of course, he puts others first. And Paul says, well, as a matter of fact, verse 17, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He had already, he uses that phrase later in 2 Timothy 4 to say, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. So he was willing to spend his life in such a way that their sacrifice to God would be brighter, would burn more brightly before God. Now that reminds us of Romans 12.1 which tells us, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service. That is what God expects of believers, that we present ourselves as a sacrifice. When I was a teenager, I heard Bill McDonald say in a message that he knew of a man who would kneel down by his bed every morning and he would pray, Lord, this bed thine altar my body, thy willing sacrifice. That was a good way to start the day. Saying what I do with my body, what I do with myself, my person, that's going to be a sacrifice unto God. It's like the great hymn, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. He goes through in that hymn and he goes through every part of the person. And he says, Lord, I want it to all be consecrated, all devoted to you, to your service, to your things. Well, Paul says, you're all offering up a sacrifice to God. And if my purpose in life is to make sure that you are a more acceptable sacrifice, that you are more pleasing to God, that you serve God better, that you burn more brightly, I consider that a willing effect of my life being poured out. What a tremendous servant's heart. What a tremendous putting others first. Because you know, at the end of his life, when you read 2 Timothy 4, it's very sad. In 2 Timothy 1, he says, all those who are in Asia have turned against me. And in chapter 4, he puts some names on that. (laughs) Demas, who had been mentioned favorably in Colossians 4, and who shows up with Paul in Acts and in Philemon and other places. Demas, who had been a co-worker, 
He has departed, having loved this world, this present world. What a sad thing for that. He says, at my first defense, no man stood with me. The loneliness of Paul. He would speak in 2 Corinthians and say this way, though the more I love, the less I be loved. You know what all that means? It means a life of service to God as he went along and preached and taught. He didn't see increasing victories and increasing numbers of people saved and increasing assemblies growing and progressing and everything always going well. By the end of his life, he saw a lot of people drawing back. He saw a lot of failure. He saw a lot of people turning their back on him. It wasn't about results in this life. It was about being an acceptable sacrifice to God. He wanted to be poured out before God and let God do what he will with the result. Well, somebody might say, after all, Paul, you're an apostle, of course. That's part of the job description, isn't it? You're super duper spiritual. Of course you'll think that way, putting others first and be willing to pour out your life like a drink offering. But Paul says, wait, verse 19 But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Oh, his heart for them. He loved them. Wanted to know how they were doing. But why is he sending Timothy? Verse 20. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, He served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. Here's Paul in prison, and he doesn't have much comfort. And in situations like that, when I'm in a position where I'm going through a hard time, I want my friends around me. I want my family around me. Paul says, I'm willing to send Timothy just to make sure how you're doing and to keep you going along right. And you know what? I know Timothy's going to care for you. He doesn't come with ulterior motives or seeing what he can get from you. I know that Timothy is going to naturally care for your state. He's going to care for you and care for what's best for you. You know how he has that proven character. He served with me like a son with his father. You know, in the ancient world, if your father was a baker, guess what you're going to do in life? You're going to be a baker. You're going to learn baking from your father. If your father's a carpenter, you're going to become a carpenter. The Lord Jesus himself was known as the son of the carpenter. And even in one place in Mark 6, I believe, he's actually called the carpenter. So he succeeded his father in the business, apparently, until the Lord called him into full-time, until his father called him into full-time service. Timothy, in like manner, had learned of Paul had it imbibed that same spirit. He followed the teaching of 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Timothy imitated Paul and imitated Christ by putting others first and saying, I'm going to come there and be among those saints, not for what I can get, not for my needs to be met, but Lord, how can I build them up? How can I encourage them? How can I help them in the work of the Lord? Well, Paul, after all, he's your lieutenant. He's your right-hand man, your own fair-haired boy, so to speak. Of course, Timothy's going to be that way. Oh, but he goes on to say, verse 25, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, 
but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. I'm sending you back one of your own, a hometown boy, Epaphroditus. And think of those great commendations. We live in an age which loves to put titles on men. Well, the New Testament doesn't do that. No titles, but listen to this description of his service. Here, Epaphroditus is my brother. Now, there's really nothing more honoring. That's better than being called reverend, because the scripture only ever uses reverend in reference to God. Holy and reverend is thy name. That's better than being called the right honorable this or that. Being a brother means you're part of the family of God. Being a sister means you're part of the family of God. Can you go any higher than that in blessing and importance? Then he describes him as fellow worker. (laughs) You know, it's all about serving the best of all masters and carrying out the greatest plan that's ever been devised in this world. Like the hymn writer said, view the building, see it rise, the work how great, the plan how wise. Being a fellow worker with Paul in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and fellow soldier, because as we saw before, this is warfare. This is a battle. And Epaphroditus strapped on his armor. He was a hoplite, the ancient world's version of the Minuteman. He answered the call to arms. He said, I'm going to be all I can be for the Lord Jesus. He said, I'm going to aim high. He said, "Uh, I don't know how I can work anchors away in, but Gary Wilson will be upset if I don't. So I'll just say it that way. He was full tilt for the Lord. And he says here, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. He came and he brought word from you and he served me. How did he serve? Well, verse 26, he was greatly longing for you and distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now, the last phrase there wasn't a slap at them. It wasn't saying, you didn't serve me, so Epaphroditus had to. No, he was saying, you couldn't serve me. You weren't able to come here and serve me. So in your place, Epaphroditus came and he served. How did he serve? He served so much, he didn't care about himself. And in serving, he got sick and he almost died. And what kind of a selfless person was Epaphroditus? How much did he put others first? Well, when he got sick, he wasn't like me sitting in the hospital bed saying, why don't more people come to visit me? Where are the flowers or better yet, the candy? Uh, What about the cards, you know? Why doesn't somebody phone me up? (laughs) Poor me. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. You know, that sort of thing. Now, Epaphroditus was sad. Why was he sad? He says, I'm so sorry I got sick because this is going to make the saints in Philippi worry about me. And they're going to take up their precious time praying for me. And I wish I just didn't bring all this trouble on them. You know, sometimes I've visited dear saints of different ages, actually, in cases of extreme illness. And I walk in thinking, Lord, please make me an encouragement. Please help me to say something nice to them that will cheer them and put their eyes on the Lord. And time after time, I come away saying, Lord, you blessed me. You put my eyes on you through them. 
Uh, it was greater to visit them than to uh, anything I did for them. That's how the Lord works. That's what the Lord wants to do in all of us. That whatever our circumstance is, we're not inward looking, we're not introspective and consumed by ourselves, but we're outward looking, looking at others and saying, how can I benefit others? You can't do this naturally. It has to be the mind of Christ produced in you by his spirit. And the only way you get to cultivate that is by immersing yourself in the word which reveals to you the living word. As you walk with the living word whom Brother Rex spoke about and you spend time with him praying through this book and seeing how he acted and seeing how he wants our affections and our thinking to be, then your life changes. He changes your heart. He makes you more others focused, more others centric, if you will, centered upon the needs of others. May God help us to do so. Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus. We pray that even today we'd live this truth out. We want to be lights in the world, Father. It's a dark, dark world we're in, getting darker all the time. So we want to shine more brightly. Help us, Father, cultivate in us the mind of Christ. We're thankful that it's God who works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. We give thee praise in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.